Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. While things are still unsettled in the world, we are going to be turning to some of our favorite episodes from the past four years, which I hope you'll enjoy. What does the word cute mean to you? Would you recognize it if you saw it on the street? In a Hello Kitty handbag, say? Or what about those Jeff Koons balloon animals? Is that cute? Why has cuteness taken the world by storm, especially since the 1980s? I mean, think of E.T., Gremlins, The Land Before Time, even the Teletubbies. Cute is everywhere. How did it get there? The philosopher Simon May has spent a lot of time thinking about cute what it is and what it does, and what it has to tell us about the shifting boundaries between ourselves and the outside world, and how cute plays with the dichotomies of gender, age, morality, species, and even power itself. After all, cute is adorable and kind of harmless. But for all that, it's also a little bit unnerving. Simon May joins us from London to talk about his new book, The Power of Cute, and what is so disquieting about it. Thanks so much for talking to me. Pleasure. So Simon, you're a professor of philosophy with a hefty book about Nietzsche and two books on love under your belt. Why write about something that a lot of people think of as trivial? Why write about cute? Because I have long been fascinated by its ubiquity, by the fact that it's really taken over our modern world, but only historically speaking, quite recently, and that, in other words, only really since the Second World War, and only big time since the 80s. It's something that swept the world and almost nobody seems to be writing about. So how would you define cute? Because I think it obviously evokes a range of emotions and images when we think about it, but I'd like to see what you are talking about specifically. Well, I think most people, when you say the word cute, they think of little teddy bears with button eyes and furry tummies and essentially something just vulnerable and harmless and pettable, so to speak. And that is certainly one end of what I call this cute spectrum. But the cute that really gets people interested in the sense that it's commercially huge is cute like Hello Kitty or back in the 80s, E.T., or still further back after the Second World War, the new incarnation of Mickey Mouse. And there, generally, we find something that's more of a slightly spooky, uncanny, hybrid character, often a little deformed or hobbled. So, for example, Hello Kitty, of course, has no mouth. I mean, she is voiceless um, and just little dots for eyes. And I'm just intrigued by why this... Uh, you know, slightly uncanny, often deformed and hobbled creatures should be of such huge interest globally. So how did cute go from being a fringe phenomenon to this absolute mainstream consumer hit? Right. I mean, as a child of the 90s, I feel like I've lived with the cute all my life since I grew up with a lot of your examples. E.T. and the cute dinosaurs from The Land Before Time and Hello Kitty. Um, but it seems like we've really hit a new wave since it all took off in the 80s. I mean, even my mom is using emojis now. So where did the cute get its power? Well, I think, uh, you know, several trends have come together to make cute so compelling. 
One is the way our world is in a way fascinated by indeterminacy. So a lot of the old, very clear categories that we used to have, like male, female, child, adult, human, animal, are breaking down. So, you know, we have a much more fluid gender spectrum. Uh, We think of the child as always present in the adult and in the adult's decision, you know, whether it's relationships or career choices. There's always some sense in which, I suppose this is since Freud, we think of the child as determining the whole of life. And we also in many ways see the adult world of consumerism, of sexuality to some degree, uh, a certain self-consciousness is present in in the child. And of course, the idea that we human beings are, are continuous with the animal world rather than being completely distinct, as certain passages in the Bible tell us, has been collapsing since Darwin. And that's one factor, the fascination with indeterminacy. Uh, A second factor is the way in which the child is becoming um, what I call the supreme object of love. So the child is very gradually taking over from the romantic couple, very gradually, not entirely, as the locus of the sacred. The child is the one aspect of life that we dare not desecrate. And this is something relatively new. It seems self-evident to us now, but a hundred years ago, uh, it was a very different situation where you had still, incredibly, in our Western world, uh, you had child labor. um, Sexual abuse of children was not something that was on the radar screen. And today, I think the sort of priority of the child, I don't want to use the word infantile because that has a sort of negative connotation, although many people think of the cute as infantile. But just the priority of the child in our whole consciousness, I think, is a second factor that that is making cute so beguiling. Um, I'm not saying these things are conscious, but I think they're working at an unconscious level. And then a third factor, I would say, and all these things come together, is the way in which since the Second World War, which is really the time from when cute took off, though I agree with you, the 80s was when it really took off in a big way. But there has been an attempt obviously halting and often reversed, to free the world of the idea that might is right. So there's been a sort of um, attempt to get away from the power paradigm, if you like, and even in international relations. You know, it's only since the Second World War that we've had all these international institutions where relations between states get worked out in terms of negotiation rather than just in terms of brute force. And right down to the level of personal relations, you see an attempt these days to eviscerate relations of just determination by power. And much of the uh, uh, Me Too movement is concerned with ending the uh, use and abuse of power uh, in relations between men and women. So I I think these are vast trends. And somehow just those three I've mentioned coming together make, you know, the small, vulnerable, plucky object of fascination provided, and this is a very important caveat for Cute, that it's presented in a light-hearted register. So there is, you know, I mean, Cute couldn't be sort of deadly serious, otherwise it would lose its its uh, attractiveness. So what about sincerity? The Cute is sweet, a trait we'd usually associate with earnestness, but it's also uncanny and a little off, and, and that seems to undermine the sincerity part. Actually, that's another dichotomy that it breaks down. 
which we've had for centuries, even millennia, sincerity presupposes an inner world that is given expression in an external world. So, you know, we say someone is sincere when their actions, we take their actions to accurately express their inner emotions, if you like. Cute has no inner world. It breaks down. Sincerity, by definition, is about accurately representing an inner world. So if there is no inner world, um, you know, there is nothing to be sincere or insincere about. And that's why I say in the book that it steps outside the cult of sincerity. It's not that it's anti-sincerity in some way. It doesn't take a position, so to speak, even implicitly against sincerity. It just has nothing to do with it. And of course, that might be another cause for people to criticize and say it's superficial. But I have big questions about the degree to which we can know ourselves to be sincere. In other words, big questions about the degree to which we can accurately introspect and make accurate comments about who we are. Sincerity has been lionized since the 18th century, since the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau in particular. And it's huge today. You know, people all the time wonder if people are sincere or insincere. But our politicians, you know, do they say what they mean or do they just say what they want people to hear and so on? And I think that cute steps outside that whole way of conceiving the human being's relation to the world. It sounds a bit highfalutin, but uh, it doesn't attempt to do any of these things. It just, you know, that's just what it does. One of my favorite chapters of the book is where you talk about cuteness in Japan, or kawaii as it's known there. Uh, Japan is one of the major exporters of cute, of Hello Kitty and Pokemon and a million different other kinds of anime. Can you explain how kawaii became synonymous with Japan? Absolutely. Well, I mean, Japan, uh, in a sense, perfectly illustrates the three mega trends, if you like, that I mentioned at the beginning that I think underlie the explosion of cute. So after the catastrophe of the Second World War, I mean, before that, cute barely registered on the radar screen in Japan. But since the Second World War, and especially since the 70s, I would say, although it was already there, it was already beginning in the 60s, Japan started to self-present itself to the world as, so to speak, a cute nation, uh, even to the point where the foreign ministry actually designated three young women as cute ambassadors for the country. And, of course, a lot of the cute icons, like Hello Kitty, are from Japan. And the reason for this is really goes back to what I mentioned at the beginning. After the disaster of the Second World War uh, and the two nuclear bombs, the only nuclear bombs that have ever been dropped on a nation, uh, Japan tried to present a an image to the world of harmlessness. It was no longer a threat to the world. It was no longer going to be aggressive. And it was going to consciously present this harmless image to the world. Now, I'm not saying that it did this entirely or even mainly through cute, but I'm just saying that cute was one aspect of how the Japanese presented this image, this new image of their peaceableness and harmlessness, unthreateningness to, to the world. There is a second aspect which concerns indeterminacy. Uh, now, this is something relatively new for the West, this idea of the collapse of very strict categories. But the Japanese have always been and remain much less tied than we are to extreme opposites. You know, it's either a male or a female. It's either a child or an adult. They are much more 
fluid in terms of how they see things. And it it is a little bit of a cliche, you know, but Japanese often say, you know, for us, things can be true and false at the same time. Um, now, I don't want in any way to speak of the Japanese in terms of cliches, and some of these do become cliches, but there is a sense in which um, they celebrate indeterminacy in a way that the West has only started to do recently. There have been vocal Japanese critics of the cute, though. Absolutely. Some of whom seem to use its language even, like Takashi Murakami, while pushing back against it. Exactly. So can you talk about what Murakami's criticism of the Japanese embrace of cute has been? He sees precisely, I think, my point about Japan presenting itself as harmless, as a sort of humiliating way to present a great nation to the world, and also a trivial way to present a great nation to the world. And he thinks that Japan has, so to speak, uh, I think he uses the word self-castrated itself, but I might be I might be wrong there, but certainly that's the sense he gives, that Japan has gone overboard in terms of doing this, and in a sense it's undermined its own dignity in doing so. I think that's the essence of his his point. So he's very critical of it, but my attitude is not to say even I think that cute is good or bad. I'm not saying it's great. What interests me about cute, which is actually is quite a trivial phenomenon, um, but what interests me about it is that it swept the world. Well, what's interesting about a lot of the cute things that you talk about in Japan is that they're not really a powerless kind of cute. A really good example of this would be Yoshimoto Nara's paintings of children and animals, which are both sweet and sinister, cuddly, and maybe also out to get you. It's, it seems really like a self-sufficient kind of cute, like there's a power in that powerlessness. Yes. I think, you know, if you look at some cute objects, I come back to Hello Kitty again, I mean, clearly they look vulnerable, they look powerless to a degree, but they also are sort of, they don't look put upon. They they don't look dejected. And in their ability to arouse the passion of millions, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of fans, they clearly, in virtue of doing that, have a certain power, if you like, in inverted commas, over their fans. I mean, the idea that they are just there to, you know, be kind of gloated over as these vulnerable objects, I think is quite wrong. And so you have a kind of a more complex power relationship there. You know, clearly anything which we feel we need or attracted to that intensely is always going to have an element, if you like, of power over us. So what I'm saying is that most of these creatures though they might look vulnerable, they don't look dejected, and that's a totally different thing. It creates a kind of uncertainty about power relations, which I think is something that our age is looking for. It's looking to get away from these very clear power gradients. I want to talk a little bit more about, I guess, how you situate yourself in relation to cute. I mean, you've, you talked about how there's not a ton written about cuteness, but there have been some things written about it, and it seems from your survey that a lot of them are pretty critical of cuteness and maybe trivializing. Uh, Can you talk about sort of the landscape of cute critique beyond what you've said about Takashi Murakami's views in particular? Sure. Well, actually, there have been, I'm hard pressed to think of a single actual book uh, on cute. Uh, Some of the uh, writing I cite is really in the form of articles. And a lot of it is very moralistic about cute. So it, uh, 
it attacks it for being infantile, for being infantilizing, for being typical of the trivialization of commercialization, and that we're somehow getting sucked into this infantile world. As I say, I don't take a position about whether it's a great thing or a bad thing. I want to avoid that kind of criticism because it stops us from seeing what's going on. I mean, there's something as vast as this is going on. It's interesting to know what it says about our world. And I don't think it is just about infantilizing. It is a playful expression. I mean, this is very key. It's just a playful expression, which is, by the way, how we like to self-present these days. I mean, you mentioned emojis before, you know, and I agree. I mean, one of the striking things is that people from, I don't know, age nine to 90 uh, use these emojis. That would have been unthinkable two or three generations ago that a grandmother would for example, or grandfather would present themselves in that way. And I think that belongs to the world we live in. So I don't want to say it's all just infantilizing. I think there are some really important trends at work here. Above all, as I said, the priority of the child as the sacred and the way in which we see life now in much less black and white terms. And neither of those are trivial. So even if their representation via cute even if the images of cute look trivial, I think what it's speaking of is not trivial. I mean, that's really my point. Well, and another powerful thing that the cute can do, which you write about, is expand our circles of empathy, right? Right. I mean, would you contrast that aspect of the cute with another criticism leveled at it, which is that it's imperialistic or domineering in its desire to anthropomorphize everything, to break down all of the barriers with the human? Yes, exactly. Anthropomorphizing can be a way of gaining empathy, exactly, as as much as an imperialistic act, in inverted commas, of imposing you know, the human onto the non-human. And actually, there have been um, social psychologists, Jonathan Haidt is one of them, who've actually seen cute as a way of expanding our circle of sympathy, and even as a way, therefore, of expanding our circle of morality, because... You know, morality is impossible without empathy. In other words, we we have to feel our way into another being in order to act morally towards them. And the argument that people like Jonathan Haidt have made is that cute actually expands the circle of, of sympathy. Far from restricting it, it actually enlarges it. Well, and I love, too, that you cite Emily Dickinson in that. Yeah, exactly. You can read one of them if you wish. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. Um... I think this is my favorite. Papa above, regard a mouse, or powered by the cat. Reserve within thy kingdom a mansion for the rat. Snug in seraphic cupboards to nibble all the day, while unsuspecting cycles wheel solemnly away. Magnificent. I mean, this is about a dead mouse rather than a dead child, and it's pleading with God to grant the mouse an afterlife in what she calls snug seraphic cupboards. And that's exactly a reflection of what I talked about. I mean, you know, this is, this is including the us in the animal world or including the animal world in us. It's not seeing this sharp dichotomy between the human and the animal. And uh, it's hard to see how the mouse is in some way humiliated by being anthropomorphized, right? Um, the opposite. I mean, cute is employed here to charm God into treating mice as he treats humans. In other words, into 
bestowing equality on all creation. So I think that's a great example of exactly the point that cute can extend our circle of sympathy rather than narrow it. Simon May's book, The Power of Cute, is itself kind of a cute object. A clever little hardback with a pink and purple cat on a black background. It's that same interplay of dark and adorable. We've got links to that book, as well as some of the examples that we talked about, in the show notes. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.